0: You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello, and thank you for joining us for the December 25th, yes, Christmas Day, reading of Sports news. My name is Philip Bradbury. Well, as usual, there's lots going on in the sports world, both on and off the field. But first, I'd like to wish everyone a very Merry Christmas on behalf of everyone at Audio Information Network of Colorado. And as a reminder, soon to be called aftersight. So let's jump right in. Let's start off with some baseball news. And the Dodgers have really scored on this one. This article is written by Matt Levine, and he is with Dodger Team News, and this appeared on December 22nd on DodgerNation.com. All the details on Yoshinobu Yamamoto's reported contract with the Dodgers, and this is huge because they just signed Shohei Otani as well. The Dodgers landed their big target late Thursday night, signing Japanese pitching sensation Yoshinobu Yamamoto to a 12-year, $325 million contract after landing the two-way superstar Shohei Otani. The Dodgers wasted no time going after one of the most coveted free agents of all time. Yamamoto's contract looks very different from the one that Otani signed with the Dodgers, though Otani's deferrals allowed this signing to happen, and they now pair him up with one of the better pitchers in the world. So here's a breakdown of the contract. There are no deferrals. There are two opt-outs in the deal after the 2029 and 2031 seasons, and Yamamoto gets a $50 million signing bonus. In addition to what the Dodgers will be paying Yamamoto, they will also be paying a $50.6 million posting fee to the Oryx Buffaloes, and that's the Japanese team that he came from. But L.A. will gladly pay the fee to land the right-hander. This contract is the largest guaranteed deal for a pitcher in Major League Baseball history, surpassing the contract that Jarrett Gole signed with the Yankees a few years ago. It's also the largest deal in terms of years for a pitcher as well. Yamamoto has never thrown a pitch in the big leagues, but the majority of the industry believes that his stuff will translate over to the league very well. The sheer fact that the normally cautious Dodgers were willing to give him this contract shows that they have full belief in his abilities. Los Angeles won the Yamamoto sweepstakes by matching a contract offer that Yamamoto received from the New York Mets. He picked the Dodgers over the Mets despite the deals being identical, showing that he likely wanted to join L.A. all along. He will now headline the rotation for years to come, and the Dodgers have landed their ace. Alongside Tyler Glasnow, Yamamoto gives them a lethal one-two punch at the top of their starting rotation. A lot of credit needs to go to the Dodgers' front office for this signing. They set out to make a splash this offseason, and instead of creating a tidal wave, instead created a tidal wave across the league. Yamamoto is only 25 years old, so there's plenty of time for him to continue growing in his game. Seems that in the end, though, Yamamoto just wanted to become a member of the Dodgers. It was reported earlier in the free agent process that he grew up a fan of the Dodgers, which possibly played in him joining the team. So, L.A.'s now at has their strength in their starting rotation once again after struggling all of last season Yamamoto represents the Dodgers front office putting together a great off season and they may just not be done yet so we're going to switch over to that article also by Matt Levine and also written on December 22nd appearing in Dodger team news The winter of Andrew Friedman continues with the Dodgers' recent signing of Japanese pitching sensation Yoshinobu Yamamoto, landing Shohei Otani and Yamamoto gives LA the top two free agents on the market this offseason. This is also in addition to the team trading for ace Tyler Glasnow to shore up the front part of their starting rotation. It's been a dream offseason for the Dodgers so far, but it seems that they may not be done just yet. Major League Baseball insider Jim Bowden of The Athletic is reporting that LA could look into trading for all-star closer Emmanuel Clace from the Cleveland Guardians. The Dodgers have been linked to free agent closer Josh Hadler this winter as well, so it would make sense for them to look at Clace. There have been rumors that Cleveland could be looking to move him this offseason, and the Dodgers certainly have the prospect capital to make this deal happen. It would take multiple high-end prospects to land Klaes, but it could be worth it. He has five more years of team control, including two team options, and he would headline the bullpen for his Dodgers team. Clace also wouldn't cost him much in terms of a salary. He is owed 2.9 million this coming season, 4.9 million in 2025, 6.4 million in 2026, and then two years with team options for 10 million in 2027 and 2028. Last season with the Guardians Place posted an ERA of 3.22 in 75 appearances. He had 44 saves for Cleveland and has made the All-Star team in each of the last two seasons. He is undoubtedly one of the best closers in baseball, and L.A. would love to have him close games for them for the next half decade. If the Dodgers were to pull off a trade for Clase, it would move even Phillips back to being a setup man and fireman. Phillips has always seemed to thrive in that role, which would be even better for the Dodgers' bullpen. It remains to be seen if the Dodgers will pull the trigger on any deal for Clase, but it's an interesting thought. The front office seems to be in, all in right now, and this move could further push that narrative. And speaking of the Dodgers and Shohei Ohtani, and Merry Christmas, Shohei Ohtani gifts a porch to Joe Kelly's wife for trading jerseys with number 17 of the Dodgers. This article is written by the ESPN News Services, came out on ESPN.com yesterday on Christmas Eve. Ashley Kelly, the wife of Los Angeles Dodgers relief pitcher Joe Kelly, has a good reason to be in the holiday spirit after offering up her husband's number 17 to new acquisition Shohei Otani via a social media campaign. Her gift to Otani was reciprocated on Saturday with Otani delivering a new silver Porsche to a stunned Ashley Kelly in return. A video that the Dodgers posted to social media on Saturday night showed Ashley opening the front door to see the new car parked at the curb. It's yours, from Shohei, the delivery driver told her. He wanted to gift you a Porsche. Actually, Kelly publicly lobbied for Otani to sign with the Dodgers with her Otani 17 social media campaign. She comically reached out to Otani, showing him all the number 17 garb in the family's closets that could be converted for use by him and his family. She even offered to rename the couple's baby Kai to Shokai. After Otani signed a record 10 year, $700 million deal with the Dodgers earlier this month, Kelly posted a video on Instagram of her throwing all of her number 17 Kelly garb on her front lawn and then drawing a Kelly 99 on the back of her husband's shirt with a Sharpie. Joe Kelly, who had worn number 17 since 2019, has officially given up the number to Otani, who wore that number during his six seasons with the Los Angeles Angels. The veteran reliever now will don number 99 for the Dodgers. I wasn't going to give it up to just anybody, Kelly said after Otani was announced as his new teammate. If Shohei keeps performing, he'll be a future Hall of Famer and I'll be able to have my number retired. That's the closest I'll get to the hall of fame in other baseball news this article appeared in publications worldwide posted by the associated press on december 22nd ryan miner the baltimore orioles infielder who became part of baseball history when he replaced cal ripken at the end of his record-setting consecutive games streak in 1998 has died at the age of 49 The University of Oklahoma, where Miner starred in baseball and basketball, said that he died of cancer. The Orioles also released a statement on social media, quote, we are deeply saddened by the passing of former third baseman and longtime minor league manager Ryan Miner courageously fought cancer, end quote. Our thoughts and prayers are with the Ryan's family and friends at this time. Drafted by the Orioles in 1996, Minor made his big league debut late in the 1998 season. Then, a week later, September 20th, he was thrust into the spotlight. In the team's final home game of the season, Ripken decided to end his streak at 2,632 consecutive games. Minor started at third base for the first time in his career. I had no idea when I was coming to the park, Miner said at the time. Minor went on to play parts of four seasons for the Orioles and the Montreal Expos, appearing in 142 major league games. This summer, the Delmarva Shorebirds, an Orioles minor league affiliate, made his number 44 the first jersey number in team history to be retired. He hit 24 home runs for Delmarva in 1997 while working his way towards the majors and he later managed the team from 2010 to 2012 and then again from 2014 to 17 he also had multiple stints managing the frederick keys at oklahoma minor pitched and played first base he helped the sooners win a national title in baseball in 1994 and he was named big 8 player of the year in 95 on the basketball court the six foot six minor finished with 1,946 points and was drafted in the second round by the Philadelphia 76ers in 1996, the same year that the Orioles took him. The Oklahoma Sports Hall of Fame recently announced that minor would be part of its 2024 class of inductees. And speaking of the Orioles, This article also was written by the Associated Press, came out on December 18th in publications worldwide. Maryland officials approved a lease extension for the Baltimore Orioles at Camden Yards, formalizing a long-term agreement between the team and the state and capping months of negotiations that were challenged by how to proceed with future development plans near the ballpark. The state's Board of Public Works, chaired by Governor Wes Moore, voted 3 nothing for the lease extension after it was approved by the maryland stadium authority earlier in the day this is a great day and i am thrilled to tell you why but first i want to say something that i've been w- waiting to say for a long time baltimore the deal is done moore said in a news conference The deal extends the lease for 30 years with an option to end it after 15 years if the team does not receive approval from state officials for development plans next to the stadium. The Orioles lease at Camden Yards, which is owned by the state of Maryland, was set to expire at the end of the year. In September, the team announced a 30-year deal to stay in the ballpark and the governor's office released details of a memorandum of understanding involving the team the stadium authority and the governor some maryland officials including state senator state some maryland officials including state senate president bill ferguson expressed concerns this month over the development rights agreement that was part of the deal ferguson whose district includes the ballpark supported the new plan agreed to since then now that future development has greater oversight by state panels Today, we stand here together, a group of individual leaders working as one to move forward not just the city of Baltimore, but the entire state of Maryland to create a championship for this state, Ferguson said. Comptroller Brooke Leerman, who was one of the three members of the Board of Public Works, said it took months to finalize the deal in terms that keep the Orioles in Baltimore while providing the best value to taxpayers. She said it was a challenging process, but she's pleased with the collaborative effort. I think the lease agreement we're approving today is a culmination of that collaboration, and I'm confident that it's a good deal for Marylanders. Orioles owner John Angelos expressed support for the agreement in a statement after the board's vote, quote, Our management group took the Orioles to the top of the league this season, and now, in partnership with Governor Westmore and his administration, they made this deal happen. Most importantly, I'm happy that we can deliver on our promise to fans to keep the Orioles here for 30 more years, marking the 100th season of the team in Baltimore." Last year, the state increased bond authorization for M&T Bank Stadium, home of the Baltimore Ravens and Camden Yards. The measure allowed borrowing of up to $600 million for renovations at each stadium. The lease extension enables access to the funds for Camden Yards. The Ravens already have announced specific renovations plans for their venue and speaking of the baltimore ravens let's segue now to football this article written by mike reese he's a staff writer for espn it came out on december 22nd on espn.com from foxborough mass New England Patriots coach Bill Belichick said the kicking footballs used in the first half of Sunday's 27-17 loss to the Kansas City Chiefs were under-inflated by two to two and a half pounds, and he deferred to the NFL as to see why that was the case for both teams. We don't have anything to do with it. Were we aware of it? Yeah, definitely, Belichick said. As I understand it, they were all the same. I don't know what the explanation is. It was the same for both teams. You'll have to talk to the league about what happened on that, that part of it that they control all of it. MassLive.com first reported on the underinflated kicking footballs. Per league rules, the kicking footballs are supposed to be between 12.5 and 13.5 pounds per square inch, with officials in charge of ensuring that that is the case, as they are in possession of all football leading up to the game. Referee Sean Huchuli's crew worked the Chiefs Patriot game, and Huchuli is in his 10th season working NFL games and was promoted to referee in 2018. A spokesperson for the NFL declined comment regarding the underinflated footballs. Belichick said missed field goals by Kansas City's Harrison Butker from 39 yards and New England's Chad Ryland from 41 yards in the first half and two kickoffs that almost went out of bounds were plays in which you could see how the underinflated footballs affected the game. Patriots players privately acknowledged that it was disappointing and that the footballs weren't pumped up correctly, but noted that it was the same for both teams. Ryland, who is enduring a challenging rookie season with 13 field goals in 20 attempts appeared to be notably frustrated in the locker room after the game. Butger had made all 23 of his field goal attempts entering the game, but didn't think his 39-yard miss was a result of the air pressure in the football. I think it was technique, one of those misfires that you wish you had back, he said. My second kick of pre-game warm-up, I had a 38-yarder middle, and it kind of sliced off to the right like that, so it showed up, kind of, in warm-up. I made a lot of big kicks with flatter balls, and shoot, even in college I kicked a lot of flat balls. Fletker, who's 28, is in his seventh NFL season and said that he couldn't tell the footballs were underinflated. He said that officials informed him at halftime that the balls were a little deflated and that they just let me know they pumped them up. He described that process as nothing new and kind of routine. Butger made a 29-yard field goal early in the third quarter, and that's when he first felt something different. I didn't notice anything on that opening kickoff, and then second half, once you make that field goal, you have the kickoff and you can feel the ball, he said, and it was noticeably more pumped up. But again, cold weather is going to make the inflation go down. I've even had games where the bladder of the ball might pop or something, and maybe you feel it on kickoff, and then you just ask for a different ball. So stuff like that happens, and you just roll with it. I've made decent kickoffs with balls that maybe aren't perfect 13 PSI indoor room temp, but it's just kind of the nature of the game. Sometimes that stuff happens. The inflation levels of footballs was major NFL story when the Patriots were ultimately fined a million dollars, The team was docked two draft picks, and quarterback Tom Brady was suspended four games for what the NFL determined was a scheme to provide improperly inflated footballs for the AFC Championship game against the Indianapolis Colts on January 18th of 2015. As a result, the NFL put strict protocols in place to ensure that footballs used in games were inflated properly. Well, and sadly for all you Bronco fans, Butker did make a huge field goal to end that game yesterday. And the Broncos, even though they had a tremendous comeback, fell short. Here's some news from the Pittsburgh Steelers world. These two articles are written by Brooke Pryor. He's a staff writer for ESPN, and both of them came out on December 18th and both are published on ESPN.com. Following an ejection for a hard hit on Colts wide receiver Michael Pittman Jr. on Saturday, Steelers safety Demonte Kazee has been suspended for the final three games of the regular season without pay for a repeated violation of rules meant to protect the health and safety of the players. The suspension also includes any potential playoff games, the NFL said in their statement nfl vice president of football operations john runyon issued the suspension for a violation of the rule that states it's a foul if a player quote forcibly hits the defenseless player's head or neck area with the helmet face mask forearm or shoulder even if the initial contact is lower than the player's neck And regardless of whether the defenseless player also uses his arms to tackle the defenseless player by encircling or grasping him, end quote. In a letter to Kazi, Runyon said the Steelers' safety had an quote unobstructed path to Pittman and that illegal contact could have been avoided. With eight forty-nine remaining in the second quarter, you were involved in a play that with League which the league considers a serious violation of the playing rules. Runyon also wrote, The video of the play shows that you delivered a forcible blow to the head-neck area of Colts receiver Michael Pittman Jr., who was in a defenseless posture. You had an unobstructed path to your opponent, and the illegal contact could have been avoided. Your actions were flagrant, and as a result, you were disqualified from the game. Coach Mike Tomlin said after the game the ejection came from New York and Monday Tomlin and said Kazi isn't a dirty player. Usually I talk about lowering the target, Tomlin said when he asked about coaching points he gives his safeties. The target was low and both guys were going. It was just unfortunate. I know he's not a dirty player. He doesn't aspire to do some of the things that came to light under those circumstances. Sometimes it's just professional football today and how difficult it is to operate. But the NFL is really clear, ma'am. They put 100% of the onus on the defender in those circumstances. It's unfortunate, but we understand it. Pasi has been previously fined five times for various unnecessary roughness violations for a total of $59,030 this season. Runyon's letter also notes that Kazee's status as a repeat offender as a contributing factor to the suspension, which will cost him roughly $208,000 in salary. When players violate the rules intended to protect players' safety on a repeated basis, and particularly when the violations carry with them a significant risk of injury to an opposing player, it's an appro- it is appropriate to impose substantially greater penalties, Runyon wrote. Under the collective bargaining agreement, Kazi is allowed to appeal the suspension. If he does, either Derek Brooks or James Thrash, will. the hearing officers, jointly appointed by the NFL and the Players Association, would hear the appeal. Pittman entered the concussion protocol after the hit and did not return to the game. The Steelers also lost safety Minka Fitzpatrick to a knee injury on the next play, and he had been ruled out for Saturday's game against the Bengals. And in other Steelers news, the Steelers, losers of three straight games, are turning to quarterback Mason Rudolph. Though coach Mike Tomlin stopped short of definitely naming Rudolph a starter for Saturday's pivotal division game against the Bengals, He said Rudolph is the guy with the ball. It's our intention as we sit here today to give Mason Rudolph an opportunity to start, Tomlin said in his weekly news conference. He's a veteran guy. He's a backup, but he's also a veteran guy. He's been in our program a long time. He's here for those reasons. We've got a great deal of comfort with him. Tomlin also added that he's not ruling out quarterback Kenny Pickett, who had tightrope surgery for a high ankle sprain on December 4th. He had a really good rehab today, Tomlin said of Pickett. His availability is not out of the question this week, but at the front part of our week, our attention and emphasis will be on Mason Rudolph and we'll leave the door ajar to see how Kenny responds to the work that he did today and the limited work that we're probably going to give him tomorrow. Just a week earlier, Tomlin deflected the idea of Rudolph getting an opportunity to start, saying that the environment wasn't appropriate to open up competition for the starting quarterback job because Rudolph hadn't had a lot of exposure in terms of in-helmet prep. But Tomlin changed his tune on Monday after Mitch Trubisky threw two interceptions and the offense put up a season-low 216 yards in a 30-13 loss to the Colts. Trubisky, who was signed to an extension in the offseason, was benched for Rudolph after throwing his second interception with six minutes remaining in the fourth quarter. Rudolph played six snaps of garbage time, completing two of three attempts for three yards. Not dumping the outcome of the game at Nick's feet, Tomlin said. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying the guy at that position is at the controls and does have a big say in how some things unfold. It's more really about Mason Rudolph being deserving of an opportunity and us trying to change the trajectory of what's been transpiring. What's been transpiring is the Steelers' playoff chances evaporating with three consecutive losses. In those losses, the Steelers are averaging 13.7 points per game. Since firing offensive coordinator Matt Canada, following the 13-10 loss to the Cleveland Browns in week 11, The Steelers have scored more than 16 points only once, 18 points, in the loss to the New England Patriots in week 14. In two games with Trubisky starting in place of Pickett, the Steelers are averaging 240 yards of offense, a decline from their season average of 287, which ranks 27th in the NFL. Trubisky has thrown three interceptions to two touchdowns in his starts this season, and has a qbr rating of 33.4 which is the second worst of his career behind the 33.3 in his rookie season with the bears by comparison pickett's qbr is 38.2 ranking 25th among 29 qualified quarterbacks why are we making this change man we don't like what we're looking at and that's the consistency of what tomlin said in explaining the decision What I mean is that we're not scoring enough points, particularly as you move into December football. Man, you've got to score more than 12, 14, or 16 points in games this time of year. You better assume that the others are doing the same. The engineering of victory is not going to be fluid if you're not doing those things. And obviously, by nature of the position, the guy that has the ball, quarterback position, that's a catalyst for change and opportunity. And so we want to give Rudolph some snaps from a preparation standpoint and some in-helmet perspective. Rudolph, who didn't see any game action in 2022, got his last start in a tie against the Detroit Lions in Week 10 of the 21 season when quarterback Beth Rosselsberger was placed on COVID list the night before the game. Rudolph completed 30 of 50 attempts for 242 yards and had one touchdown and one interception in that game. He also attempted eight passes in garbage time to conclude the 36-10 Week 16 loss to the Kansas City Chiefs that season. Rudolph got the bulk of his experience in 2019 following Roethlisberger's season-ending elbow injury. Splitting time with fellow backup Devlin Duck Hodges, Rudolph started eight games that season and completed 62.2% of his attempts for 1,765 yards, 13 touchdowns, and 9 interceptions. Rudolph, he's been a part of our program, Tomlin said. He knows us. We know him. He's tough-minded. He's got a lot of confidence in himself. He's a competitor. Those are some of the things that are really attractive about giving him an opportunity this week. Since the Steelers signed Trubisky during free agency last year, Rudolph has only been active for three games. Yet, Tomlin expressed confidence in the quarterback whom the Steelers selected in the third round of the 2018 draft. He's just good under tough circumstances, man. He is a competitor. He believes in himself. He's a calculated risk taker. I believe that the mentality is helpful to us under these circumstances and i guess the change paid off because in saturday's matchup between the steelers and the bengals the steelers beat the bengals soundingly 34 to 11. the jets won their last game with commanders squeaking by 30 to 28. however there are some big questions that are facing the jets with the aaron rogers season over This article by Richard Simini. he's a staff writer for ESPN, and it was published on ESPN.com on December 19th from Florham Park, New Jersey. It wasn't just a quarterback trade when the New York Jets acquired Rodgers in April. They committed to a new way of doing business. They built everything around one player, personnel, scheme, and culture, and it unraveled in spectacular fashion. Unofficially, year one of Rodgers ended on Tuesday when he announced on the Pat McAfee show that his 2023 comeback bid is over. A healthy Rodgers will be back in 2024, but only a naive observer would believe that a 40-year-old quarterback coming off Achilles surgery could single-handedly transform a franchise that has suffered for the better part of a half century. The Jets have issues. We're talking big questions, starting with, yep, personnel, scheme, and culture. Namely, will General Manager Joe Douglas and Coach Robert Saleh get a chance to clean this up? They received a strong endorsement on Tuesday from Rogers, who wields considerable influence within the organization. I believe in the leadership that we have here, he said. If owner Woody Johnson harbors any thoughts of making changes, he'd risk upsetting his future Hall of Famer who committed to playing at least two more seasons. Saleh's record is 16 wins against 32 losses, including a 2-11 mark in December-January games. His 333 winning percentage is the third worst in franchise history among coaches with at least one full season, ahead of Sam Gacy with 281, Rich Cotite, 125, and Douglas, who arrived two years before Saley, is 25 and 55 as the top football executives. Ordinarily, those kinds of records get people fired, but this is a unique situation because of the Rogers factor. At the same time, the fan base is fuming, having endured 13 straight non-playoff seasons, the longest active streak among the four major sports leagues. Rodgers probably feels indebted to Douglas and Saleh because they got him out of an uncomfortable situation in Green Bay and showed faith in him when no other team was knocking on his cabin door at his darkness retreat in February. Rodgers, in the twilight of his legendary career, doesn't want to start over with a new coach and general manager. Johnson has poured so much into Rodgers, including $75 million guaranteed for this year and next year, that he might behoove him to maximize that investment, which is why the sense at One Jets Drive is Douglas and Saleh will be back. Maybe that changes if they lose out, but right now it seems likely that the mulligans, it's mulligans for everyone. So what becomes of offensive coordinator Nathaniel Hackett? Hackett is in his first year with the Jets. is presiding over one of the worst offenses in modern NFL history. There are countless statistics that we could use to back that up, but just know this. They have 13 touchdowns, meaning they average less than one touchdown per game. The offense has fewer first-quarter touchdowns, one, than the defense has safeties, two. Week after week, the Jets seem to be a step behind from a tactical standpoint, yet Saleh has not made any changes on his offensive staff. Hackett's close relationship with Rodgers, dating to three years together in Green Bay, might have a lot to do with it. Rodgers agreed to play for the Jets in large part because of Hackett, who gives carte blanche to the four-time MVP. Like Douglas and Saleh, Hackett received effusive praise from Rodgers, who wants no part of having to learn a new offense at the back end of his career. He said Hackett runs a quarterback-friendly offense designed for him, translation, I stay, he stays, which puts the Jets between a Rodgers and a hard place. Do they retain an underperforming coordinator because he's tight with the quarterback? Does Hackett get a do-over because he lost his quarterback on the fourth play of the season? If ownership decides to replace Saleh, it would be unorthodox and completely cumbersome to force the next coach to keep Hackett. So you see, it's a sticky situation. How do they fix the offensive line? Rodgers was running for his life on the second play of the season. On the fourth play, he got caught and ruptured his left Achilles. It was a cruel harbinger. The pass protection has been abysmal all season as the Jets have allowed 61 sacks, second most in the league. The offensive line needs an overhaul. Only two starters are locks to be back in 2024. Injured guard Elijah Vera Tucker and center Joe Titman. Tackle. Mekhi Becton will be a free agent, and guard Lincoln Tomlinson, eighteen point nine million dollar cap charge in twenty four, could be a cap casualty. The bottom line: they will need two or three starters. Currently holding the number seven position in the draft, the Jets could have a shot at a blue chip left tackle, either Penn State's Oli Mujiwaya Fassanu or Notre Dame's Joe Alt. Either one would be a solid blindside protector for Rodgers. Douglas will have to rely on free agency to plug the other holes, but the pickings are slim. Jonah Williams of the Bengals might be the most intriguing name. Douglas, a former college lineman who vowed to build a formidable offensive line, has failed to do that. Since taking over in 2019, the Jets have allowed 251 sacks only the new york giants with 256 sacks allowed have allowed more injuries have also been a factor as 13 different players have started so how can they keep number 1 wide receiver garrett wilson happy their top playmaker does a good job of bottling his frustration most of the time but his patience is tested every week in Sunday's 13 to nothing loss to the Miami Dolphins, Wilson wasn't targeted until the third quarter. I'm aware he deadpanned to the reporter that Jets need to acquire another weapon to balance the passing attacks and take pressure off of Wilson. Free agency could be filled with big names like Mike Evans of Tampa Bay, He Higgins of the Bengals, and Michael Pittman Jr. of the Colts all are slated to hit the open market but the jets could try to trade for Devonte adams of the raiders yep another rogers guy rogers and adams were magic in green bay but now adams is 31 and due to make 17 million million guaranteed next year then again he'd be ideal for a win now team somehow they need to add another quality wide out because the position is devoid of playmakers after wilson who seemed envious of Dolphins with Tyreek Hill and Jaden Waddle. I think they have a lot of pieces in their favor that make it easier to scheme, Wilson said after the game. Then Reek goes down and they put Waddle in there and you go for 150 yards. That's the ball I grew up loving, but that's not how it's going right now. I have to figure it out. Be better. The allure of playing with Rodgers probably will appease Wilson for another year, but his long-term future with the team bears watching if the offensive struggles continue. So who will be the backup quarterback? Zach Wilson has one year remaining on his contract, but he could be a goner after three tumultuous seasons with little production. Ultimately, his inability to stabilize the offense is one of the big reasons why they collapsed after the Rodgers injury. The Jets learned a hard lesson, which means that they must secure a better insurance policy next season. Ryan Tannehill of the Tennessee Titans, Gardner Minshew of the Colts, and Jameis Winston of the Saints are headed to free agency. This will be one of the bigger decisions of the off season. Will they alter their team building approach? Except for drafting defensive end Will McDonald in the first round, every significant move last offseason was designed to help rogers and make him comfortable in this transition not only have those moves fizzled most notably the 22 million dollar guarantee for wide receiver alan lazard with only 23 receptions but it created a one-man team perception that's not always great for the culture if we're just depending on one person one position to save our organization then it's never going to happen says linebacker cj mosley it's it has to be everybody if we just if we're just putting our chips on one person nine times out of ten it's not going to happen this is a team sport so we'll see what happens with the jets as the season winds down and we'll obviously keep you advised here's an interesting offbeat article that i found this article by Anthony Garib, he's a staff writer for ESPN, and it came out December 19th on ESPN.com. Behind the Scenes with Goalie Mask Artist Dave Gunnerson. Many years ago, moose and oinks filled this bright red barn. Set in the countryside of Sweden in Savasho, it served as an integral part of a farm owned by Swedish artist Dave Gunnarsson's grandfather. Now the barn is a dedicated area where Gunnarsson paints the masks of some of NHL's top goaltenders. He set up over a thousand square feet for his painting supplies. Airbrushes and paint dominate spaces where a thousand pigs once roamed. He made it clear that there aren't any animals around while he paints. Well, sometimes our dog will come and visit, Gunnarsson said. In the past 27 years, Gunnarsson has played a key role in evolving goalie masks from featureless Jason Voorhees styles into canvases of everything from glow in the dark art to Lego Batman. His eye popping and creative designs are unique to the sport of hockey. Football players are often hidden behind helmets that bear the colors of their respective teams. Custom sneakers or cleats with bright colors are common among major U.S. sports yet it's rare for someone to touch them up with drawings. Gunnarsson is one of the go-to artists who continues to add a fun side to hockey. It's one of those things that you almost feel like a little kid again every time you get to design one, says L.A. King's goalie, Cam Talbot, who has worked with Gunnarsson for 13 years. Through the years, Gunnarsson has painted for top NHL goalies such as Henrik Lundqvist and Dominic Hasek. In the 2014 Olympic gold medal match, he designed the masks worn by both goalies, Sweden's Lundqvist and Canada's Carey Price. He also recently designed a mask honoring Lundqvist's induction into the Hockey Hall of Fame. This season, Gunnarsson painted a pixelated Elvis Presley for Columbus Blue Jackets goalie Elvis Merzink and mixed 3D and 2D art for a Statue of Liberty-themed mask for New York Rangers star Igor Shetstukhin. Gunnarsson's designs offer a deeper layer for goalies. Not only do they feel like kids again, but it allows fans to learn more about who they are as people. I tend to see my masks as a way of showing a little bit more about myself, says Boston Bruins goalie Linus Olmark. I don't have any tattoos on my body, but I live out my fantasies and ideas maybe throughout my mask, and that's, you know, it's very personal. Born into a farming family, Gunnarsson began painting for local goalies in Sweden at 16. His first professional goalie mask design came when he was 19 by a Swedish team, HV-71. Awareness of Gunnarsson's talent spread with more top local teams calling him. They said, it's the guy there in the forest painting masks, he said. Gunnarsson's popularity reached Olmark, who admitted that, growing up, he would try to mimic Gunnarsson, using pen and paper to draw the masks that the artist would paint. When I actually had the opportunity to work with him, it was an awesome experience and opportunity, Olmark said. Something that I've always wanted to do when I was a little boy. Once Gunnarsson's local clients started to move to the NHL in the late 1990s, they wanted to work exclusively with him. His first NHL goalie was John Hedberg, known as Moose. Gunnarsson served as Hedberg's mask painter for 16 years, creating multiple renditions of masks with a moose on them. Gunerson wants to be as versatile as possible as an artist, no matter the request, whether it's a scary or photorealistic or cartoonish. Gunerson prides himself on being comfortable with it. I really tried from when I was a young boy to be as good as possible to paint anything, he said, and his work proves it. In 2015, Gunnarsson surprised then Tampa Bay Lightning goalie Ben Bishop with a mask that had the Tampa Bay logo glow in the dark. Bishop loved it so much he asked for the entire thing to glow in the dark, which Gunnarsson replicated throughout Bishop's career. Danish goalie Frederick Anderson often wanted a Lego figure on his mask since the company is based in his home country. Gunnarsson happily obliged with different versions, adding an Anaheim Ducks themed Lego man with when Anderson was with that team. This season, Gunnarsson painted a special mask for Allmark to mark the Bruins 100th anniversary season. Allmark paid tribute by focusing on the top players or moments from the last century. He landed on two famous goals, Bobby Orr's in game four of the 1970 Stanley Cup final, and Patrice Bergeron's in Game 7 of the 2013 Eastern Conference Quarters. Both moments are painted in stylized Bruins that appear on opposite sides of the mask. I might have my own insecurities about what the results are going to be, Olmark said, but in the end, whenever he sends over the finished product, I'm always blown away by how quick and how efficient, but also how detailed. Some of Gunnarsson's top masks have involved popular actors and characters in TV shows. Talbot recently requested a Will Ferrell-themed mask that includes Ferrell's famous Ron Burgundy character. Talbot knew Ferrell, attended many Kings games, and said Ferrell is one of his favorite actors of all times. I watch every single one of his movies. Doesn't matter what it is, Talbot said. I think I saw Anchorman probably 50 times when I was in high school. Therefore, a mask with Ron Burgundy on it wasn't something out of the question. King's Equipment Manager Darren Granger told Talbot that no one had ever done a pharaoh-themed mask, so Talbot sent the idea to Gunnarson, who quickly sent a sketch. Talbot offered some input, and then Gunnarson tweaked it and painted it. Actors have hopped in the process, too. Gunnarsson collaborated with Michael J. Fox in 2015 to create a Back to the Future-themed mask, For Lundqvist, I'm a huge movie nerd, and I love Michael J. Fox and the Back to the Future movies, so it was like magic for me to do so, a Back to the Future style mask, and Michael J. Fox was involved in it, says Gunnarsson. In 2015, the then New Jersey Devils goalie Scott Wedgwood wanted a famous Devils fan to be put on his mask, Seinfeld character David Putty. In the 1995 Seinfeld episode, The Face Painter, Putty, played by Patrick Warburton, showed off his devil's fandom with special face paint. Wedgwood's which, which Seinfeld love prompted him to ask Gunderson about the putty-themed mask with the classic devil's design. So David Putty has his own putty mask, Gunderson said. Through all of these special requests, goalies credit the artist for how easy he is to work with. Changes can be made until the last moment. Almark said that before Gunnarsson puts on the final coat, he will check in to make sure the sketch is exactly what the goalie wants. Coming up with ideas can be difficult as well, but Gunnarsson's cooperation makes it a lot easier. He offers input, yet doesn't take over the conversation. His personality allows him to come up with ideas that better suit each goalie. Talbot highlighted Gunnarsson's ability to just rip masks out. He just loves what he does, and you can tell, Talbot said. It comes out in his work. It comes out in his enthusiasm in the emails and stuff like that. And once the sketch is agreed upon, he'll literally paint the mask in a day and a half or two days. I don't know how he does it. Gunnarsson's details are what separate him from other artists. There's often an extra layer to his designs that can only be identified when you see them up close. At times, an image of the mask is only half the picture. The details, the intricacies that he puts into his art, the holograms in the background that you can only see in different light and stuff like that, Talbot said, the depth to his designs are pretty incredible. But his impact reaches another level. Goalies said that growing up, the mask designs drew them to the position. It added motivation to one day have the opportunity to design their own. Being able to come up with ideas and design the mask has a special meaning. It brings back those memories when you were young and dreaming away of having your own mask and creating something that's you, and that is yours, Hallmark said. (laughs) Finishing off our Christmas sports news message is a feel-good article that involves the Lakers. How Brody the Golden Doodle Landed Portside at a Knicks-Lakers game. This article by Anthony Garib. Once again, he's a staff writer for ESPN, written on December 19th. The Los Angeles Lakers had a furry guest courtside at Monday night's game, Brody the Dog, an 80-pound golden doodle. Wearing an Austin Reeves jersey on and off and shifting from sitting in his owner's lap to laying under him, Brody caught the attention of celebrities and the players. He became the fan of the night at Crypto.com Arena, or as his owner Cliff Brush Jr. clarified, "Good Boy of the Night. They did a dance-off and Brody can move, so I knew that he was going to take it, Brush Jr. said. It was just so funny to watch them cut from one fan to Brody on the Jumbotron and how, like crazy, the arena was going. New York Knicks guard Josh Hart approached Brody before the game and told Brush Jr. how much he loves Brody's TikToks and shook his paw. Players whispered and side-eyed Brody throughout the night. Two fans sitting courtside across from them made a bet that the four-year-old dog wasn't real. According to Brush Jr., one spectator believed the pup was a person in a costume. Brush Jr. talked to referees, seasoned tick holders, and TV announcers who all told him that they'd never seen anything like it. At one point, while running down the court, Brush Jr. said LeBron James did a double take, looking at Brody and then to the basket and then back to Brody. I knew it was going to be a spectacle to a degree, Brush said, but you know, I didn't think it would be as crazy as it kind of went. By halftime, Brush knew that it was going to be viral. He also added that he doesn't know yet if Reeves reached out to him because his direct messages have been busy. The Lakers jersey sponsor Bilbago invited Brody to the game. Security escorted them to the court, and had fans instantly yelling for photos leaving the game wasn't easy rush jr estimated that they took 150 pictures brush called the head of guest services at crypto.com arena earlier on monday to have everything situated prior to the service dogs arrival the entire process turned out to be smooth with no trouble during the game a testament to brody who takes multiple flights a month He's so good that you see how he was at the game where he just lays down with his head on the floor, just observing, Brush said. He does that on the plane, too. I mean, the only chaos is when we're walking through the airports, and you know, there's just fan interactions and stuff like that. Brody sorts of signs autographs as well. If it's filmed, Brush Jr. will put the marker in the dog's hand and try to do it. If not, Brush Jr. will draw a paw print and sign it Brody. Rush hand-delivered Brody and also owns the Golden Doodles mom. An accountant and business consultant prior to the pandemic, Rush Jr. said lots of people started taking videos of Brody naturally hanging out of the car window, so he started to share it on the Internet. It's a very funny site. I posted him on TikTok every day saying post this dog every day till he blows up like day 10 he went super viral brush said and ever since then i posted consistently and then you know a year in i resigned from my accounting job and i never looked back with nearly 8 million combined followers on instagram and tiktok and 4.95 million subscribers on youtube brody has been invited to other sporting events in September of 23, he threw the first pitch at a Miami Marlins game. Well, it's more of a first fetch brush joke. I threw it and he chased it. They also sat courtside during warm ups of a Miami Heat game once, but never during an entire night like Monday. It's been a busy last couple of days for Brody. Five days ago, Brody was sworn in as the first honorary member of the Miami Beach Police Department's canine unit. After the ceremony, they did a children's hospital visit and participated in a toy drive. They then flew from Fort Lauderdale, where Brody and Brush Jr. are based, to Los Angeles for an Access Hollywood interview. The interview was originally going to be focused on Brody being sworn in, but the Lakers game became the headline. Brody and Brush Jr. will fly to Toronto on Wednesday for a brand trip. All of the appearances beg the question. Is Brody tired? Leaving the arena took like over an hour, and that was just got him exhausted, but he napped it off. He's good to go, Bruce Jr. said. He's used to this life like he loves attention. He loves energy. He loves the environment, so he is built for this. Well, that's all the time we have for sports this week. Thank you for tuning in for the Christmas night 2023 edition of Sports News